Hey, this is Andy Jenkins. Welcome to the podcast. This week, I am sharing with you episode number 164, and we are going to get into the audio from chapter 12 of my book, Soul Wholeness. Now, that book is available as a paperback. The audio book is coming out soon where I read all, it's about 400 pages to you. It's, it's 10 hours. <laughs> and so it was quite the endeavor. But, but some of this has really been the most beneficial material for me on my journey. Uh, I tend to write things that I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert in. I tend to write things that I'm exploring on my own journey that I need to know for me. And so starting back in about 2018, I already had a background in some of this uh, material, some of this information, but really started taking a deeper dive into it. If you listen to uh, a few episodes back, I, I really talked in episode 160 about the psych evaluation that I took and the reasons for that and some of the counseling uh, that I began undergoing. In this episode, I'm gonna take you inside a counseling session uh, that I had and a counselor asked me some really specific questions and it revealed something about soul ties to me. Now, very quickly, let me just identify it. I, I think there are three primary types of soul wounds that we can have. One I discussed in the previous episode, that is when we reinterpret the present in light of the past. Uh, you might think of that as post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder. You, you just can't quite shake what happened. It's a response to something external outside of you. In the next episode, I'm going to talk about guilt and shame. That's when you've got something inside of you that you're carrying. And in this episode, I, I want to talk about soul ties. That's when your heart becomes connected to the wrong thing, or your heart can even become connected to the right things for the wrong reason. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time defining that because I'm going to roll right into the audio. Let me remind you before you listen that down in the show notes, I have links to the paperback, links to uh, the audiobook. Uh, and links to the 14 video course. It's four hours long, broken up into 14 videos. It is not a regurgitation of the book, and the book is not a regurgitation of the course. They fit together, and they are extremely complimentary. I would love for you to take a look at that and see if that's something that would empower you on your journey towards total wholeness, body, soul, and spirit. And also below, there's a link to the free PTSD self-check. That'll help you assess in about two minutes with 10 yes-no questions where you are. Okay, here is the audio from chapter 12 of the book, Soul Wholeness, where we really start talking about the roots and the fruits and what's going on with the soul. Listen in. I'll be back at the end of this episode. Chapter 12, To Change the Fruit, Change the Root. Main idea. Addiction happens when we attach our hearts for any reason to the wrong place. When we do, bad fruit always emerges. When we connect our hearts in the right way to the right things, beauty emerges. You might have read the previous chapter and thought, oh, he just inferred we can easily rewrite the script. That if we don't like the story we're living, we can just sprinkle in some new characters, change the scenery, add a few power-ups, and then move forward. No. Not so fast. 
You can't create a script overnight. Not a good one, anyway. Here's what I mean. Every few months, someone asks me, how long does it take to write a book? What do you mean, I ask. How many hours? Or days? Or what do you do? Do you just sit down and start until it's done? Or... When I studied writing as an English major at Sanford University, I learned Jack Kerouac famously hammered out on the road a novel which defined a generation in three weeks on a continuous reel of paper. That approach generally doesn't leave space for reflection, for editing, and for course corrections, three things life requires that hacked out novels might not. I usually tell people, it takes what it takes. Some books go fast, others go slow. Then, I work best when I can jump into the project and stay in it, kind of getting lost inside the words and pages. Rescripting your story, your life is much the same. Unwriting old rules and thinking patterns, determining what responses are needed as opposed to those which are no longer needed, adjusting your soul memory, none of those are instant fixes. It just takes what it takes. Let me pull back the curtain, share with you a piece of my story, and highlight what I mean. This is about to get raw. Own the harsh reality. What are you seeing about yourself? Let's label it. Not to limit you and box you in, but to get a starting point. Truth is freedom. If we can define where we've been, we can always navigate from there to where you're designed to be. It was spring of 2018. Sitting in my attic office, I was speaking with a life coach via Zoom. For the previous few weeks, we had walked through the hurtful parts of my story. Like you and I discussed in the previous chapter, some of those parts were the result of things that had been done to me. Many of those parts were the results of my own actions. Either way, though, I was responsible to take stock of where I was, own my story, and step forward responsibly. We were beginning to look at what moving forward looked like. I answered him quickly. I began pushing through the list of things I was seeing about myself immediately. Words that usually scared me rolled readily from my tongue. Remember, where you are isn't who you are, but in order to move forward, you must admit that you are, in fact, where you are. The only way to begin is to begin where you are. After a few moments, I concluded, I don't know of anything else. I've laid it all out there. I can't think of anything I've omitted. Addiction, he offered. You haven't mentioned the word addiction. I would like you to explore that. Maybe, just maybe, you need to look at yourself in the mirror and add this one to your list, too. I am an addict. When he mentioned the word addiction, I began to see everything about my story through a new lens. You see, I understand what addiction looks like. No, I hadn't seen it in myself. I'd seen this one clearly in others. For almost a decade, I worked with addicts, the kind you conjure in your head when you hear the word addiction. The people hooked on heroin, LSD, marijuana, and other drugs. Alcoholics. Chain smokers. It's easy to look at them and say, oh yeah, that is an addict. I watched person after person, or let's just label it like it is, addict after addict, walk through the doors of various transitional housing facilities and shelters where I worked for almost a decade. Residents generally moved through the first 30-day phase of the programs without any incidents. They found gainful employment. They reconnected with families who became confident enough in their progress to begin visiting them on the first and third Sundays of the month. They began laughing and smiling and speaking about their future in hope-filled ways. 
Then, many times on the very first night they received their first paycheck, they threw it all away for a night of some combo of sex, drugs, and alcohol. The trifecta. It's almost as if they became a completely different person, a person seeking to sabotage their hopes and dreams rather than fulfill them. It was as if they had their unwritten rules that subconsciously tossed them into a bad outcome script, no matter how hard they fought for the good outcome version. Remember, the dysfunctional rules we discussed in chapter 10 don't have to make sense, and they often happen unconsciously as if something just triggers them into play. I worked in the field long enough to watch the same people recycle themselves through different programs. Like a revolving door or a merry-go-round, it was a predictable loop we could chart. Check in to one ministry center or rehab for help. Make meaningful progress. Crash out. Come to the senses and decide to go to another facility. Make more significant, visible progress. In short order, crash yet again. Rinse, dry out, repeat entire cycle. It was surreal. I listened to many of their stories firsthand the very hour they wandered through our doors. What brings you here? I often asked. Wow, things have got to change, and this time they will. I must jump off this roller coaster. Many then told me about the seemingly endless rinse and repeat spin cycle they were on. For sure, many of them did change. Their lives were transformed. But many of them didn't change. Their lives weren't altered in the least. Eventually, four or five years down the road, some of that second group came back to our program, many times forgetting they had even been there before. That cycle could continue almost indefinitely, especially with so many residential recovery centers in our city. And when it did, it always baffled me. Why would the couple living on the family wing of that rehab program I ran for seven years choose to get high again? They knew a failed drug test would most likely mean they would lose custody of their kids for good and that at least one of them might very well go to jail. Why would this man, who finally held a steady job, guaranteed on-time transportation to and from work each day, and a forced savings plan which ensured he would graduate our program with $5,000 to $7,000 in the bank for future expenses to begin his life anew, toss it away to live on someone's couch just so he could drink one or two beers every night after work. He'd seen enough other guys run that same scenario to know it doesn't work. I watched the cycle of devastation claim person after person. For years, I tried to figure out why they acted like they did, why some internal switch flipped and they suddenly began acting dangerously. Over time, I made a few assessments about addiction. One, I decided the issues weren't practical at all meaning if I could just explain it to them on paper or rationalize with them, illuminating the path forward, they would get better. Number two, I decided some of the issues probably centered around internal rules people created, like I'm not worthy of success or meaningful progress. Three, I decided some of the issues were cover-ups for hidden pain, that they served as coping mechanisms to block out the sound of fireworks or backfiring engines or some sort of other present thing being misperceived in light of the past. And four, I decided some of the issues were spiritual. In a real sense, everything is on some level, but that's a subject for a different book. In other words, the issues were deep. Deep like roots not surface like fruits. I used to think addiction was a fruit, that it was simply a bad choice people made. Turns out, it's not. In our rehab program, we could teach people about relationships, purpose, 
emotional health, or any other thing we saw manifest in life. We can instruct them on the healthy version of those things, but those are all fruits. That is, they're all symptoms, read, results, of our heart being attached to the right place. When our hearts are whole, relationships work, and we find purpose, and we're emotionally stable, and we don't self-sabotage, and we have enough. Think back to the thermostat-thermometer analogy in chapters 4 and 7. I assumed addiction was simply one of those bad fruits people needed to be taught about. If only they knew better, they could do better, or so it seemed. Addiction is a root issue, though, not a fruit issue. To kill it, you've got to destroy the roots, not just keep plucking off bad fruit. Unless the stuff inside changes, the fruit always returns. It might take a few weeks, read first paycheck, or it might take a few years. Example, recycle yourself back to the same rehab you've already been doing, not even remembering you've already been there, but the fruit always returns. To change the fruit, you've got to deal with the root. Now, I also assumed addiction centers mainly around substance abuse or porn. But addiction, a root, connects to other soil as well. Addiction happens when we attach our hearts, for whatever reason, to the wrong place. And when we do that, bad fruit always emerges. In order to see meaningful progress and grow fruit in a consistent way, we've got to attach the heart to the right place. Now, in the book, there's a graphic here of just a dead, wilted tree. It shows the roots and then the limbs, which have no fruit on them at all. And it says, addiction is a root. And then the lack of fruit, where fruit would be on the tree, is labeled chronic sickness, financial lack, self-sabotage, relational strife, lack of purpose, emotional volatility. Those are the symptoms of an incorrect heart attachment. Uh, and then on the next page, there is another graphic that it just says, and it's a healthy tree. It's the same tree, just it's it's a healthy version. And it says, if you attach to the heart to the right place, then the fruit emerges. And so instead of chronic sickness, we have life and wellness. Instead of financial lack, we have abundance and provision. Instead of self-sabotage, we have humble confidence. Instead of relational strife, we have healthy relationships. Instead of lack of purpose, we have hope, direction, and meaning. And instead of emotional volatility, we now have emotional stability. Again, the issue is the heart attachment. Okay, so I'll continue reading. All that said, I'd seen addiction firsthand. I'd watched amazing stories of redemption and recovery unfold right before my eyes. And I watched people choose lives of sheer hell. I even wrote the 12-step curriculum we used and shot an entire video series for. Uh, which is the next best step. Uh, you can go to the next best step dot info for all of that information for the book or the videos. Something in common. Though I never made the connection between what I taught and what I lived before hearing the label addict during the Zoom counseling session, I suddenly saw something new. I could see the patterns in my own life. My heart had been attached to the wrong things, and it had existed in one of my blind spots like we referenced in chapter 3. When I look back at my life through the lens of addiction, things made complete sense. In the same way, those addicts would go to extreme measures to find their high, so also would I. At that point, I still had to determine precisely what my drug was. I knew life had been spinning out of control. I held things together on the surface, but underneath I was sinking. 
In the same way, those addicts spurned family and friends, sacrificing them on the altar of their addiction, so also had I. In the same way, those addicts sacrificed their health and sleep and rest, abusing their physical bodies to chase their addiction, so also had I. In the same way, those addicts covered up their actions and stole in order to fuel the addiction, so also had I. In the same way, every addict I ever met who was stuck in their addiction denied having a problem, so also had I. I've mentioned it earlier. For years, I wondered if I might end up somewhere like those addicts, walking those halls, attending those classes, getting shuttled to and from work every day, having a chance to see my kids every 14 days in a two to four hour time block or while on a weekend pass as I spent the rest of my time working on the deeper issues, issues at the time I couldn't even fathom were there. Go to some meetings for addicts, my coach told me. Get online and see what's out there in your area for things like you've struggled with. It's amazing what you can do with the label when you're not afraid to confront the hard truth. In looking at my story, I consistently chased two things. Number one, drive ministry forward. Whether it was the church where I was on staff, the nonprofits where I worked, or some other project to which I was committed. And number two, please my wife or keep her appeased. That is, don't rock the boat, save the peace. On the first count, it was the ministry and the perceived success of it which fueled my ego, providing me so much of the personal validation I craved. And it was acceptable to work long hours because it was the Lord's work. I could always rationalize that life and death issues, eternity and souls, were at stake. One of my friends, as he resigned from our ministry years ago, told me, I I can't work here anymore. He added without being asked, you do the right things, but you often do them in the wrong way. It's not what you do, it's how you do it. He was the second person I heard that from. Shortcuts, long hours, insane schedules, control, bulldozing people so I could finish my latest project. That summarized the first point perfectly. I was doing great work, but I was managing it like an addict. On the second count, I had to come to terms with the fact that I desperately wanted my wife to respect me, to think I was valuable, to believe there was greatness inside of me. I lied and covered up to avoid arguments with her I knew we'd have if I owned my unsuccess, my failures, or my inability to provide something she wanted. I continued my charades in large part to create a sense of security and even abundance for her. I wrongly looked to her for the years of validation which, in my mind, I never received. As a result, when she was pleased with me, I was ecstatic. On cloud nine, when she was displeased, I was depressed. As a result, I did everything I could to keep her pleased with me, even if it was a fake pleased measured against an impossible standard. In some sense, all men want to please their wives. I'm convinced that women have no idea how much shame they inflict on their men with eye rolls, bickering, and verbal reminders that he doesn't measure up. Though I felt the tension that's common to most men, I went too far in trying to impress my woman. Those were my highs. They brought me a sense of value and purpose and meaning. They were a means of escape. They covered the hurts of the past and filled my emotional tank. Not afraid of labels. All that said, I attended a Celebrate Recovery meeting. As I left that first evening, one of the leaders handed me a small book to take home and read. I flipped through it while grilling burgers one evening, then finished reading it as I sat post-dinner on our front porch. I learned that two-thirds of the participants in CR, short for Celebrate Recovery, actually don't have a substance or chemical addiction. 
Most of them are just seeking total wholeness to see radical grace infuse their life in a way that nothing else in the world can. Notably, most of the issues are related to emotional wholeness. The one area I was beginning to learn is a significant one we often overlook. Although that's not the impression we have of addiction, that's the reality. Most of us attach our hearts to the wrong things, in large part because of past hurts and pains we're seeking to soothe. We live from undisclosed hidden rules in an effort to avoid pain. We cover that pain with addictions, false fillers which can never eliminate the void. The result is bad fruit, bad fruit which returns perennially. I can't begin to tell you how many times I killed bad fruit in my life. This is it, I repeatedly told myself. Then, I'm finally free. But I wasn't free. Not for long. Often, seemingly out of nowhere, bad fruit returned. When it did, it often grew back stronger and bigger, making it even more difficult to pluck off the next time. Maybe you've been there too, experiencing the same thing. At some point, it made me think, dang, maybe I'm just a bad tree because good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. So if bad fruit keeps returning... I even read verses in the Bible where Jesus explained that it's seemingly impossible for good trees to produce bad fruit. See Matthew 7, 17 through 20. What did that make me? One day, during that soul-searching season, I looked out the attic window and across my backyard. I decided that Jesus must have been speaking in generalities. The best tree at my house occasionally produced a bad apple, and the most diseased tree occasionally exhibited a good one. Jesus looked at the overall trajectory, the thing the tree is known by, not the occasional outlier. As his little brother later wrote in James 3.2, we all stumble. Anyway, the CR leader who gave me the book also directed me to an info table where they kept a dozen or more green sheets. Each one detailed a specific addiction issue, that is, an incorrect heart attachment. Those pages contained info on everything from codependency to alcoholism to having been raised in a dysfunctional family to eating disorders to mental health issues to just about anything else you could brainstorm. Each sheet listed both symptoms. And every solution required going beneath the surface, heading right into the dirt and digging deep. After just being honest, cussing under my breath, things became ultra clear to me. Though most of us never get diagnosed, we all struggle with our own demons, it seems. Some of them are just more acceptable, a bit more sanitized, more mainstream, and therefore less noticeable to others. Though my addictions were acceptable by most standards, they were as equally deadly as their less sanitized counterparts. I walked out of the room, my stack of green sheets in hand, realizing I had a long road ahead of me. By my own estimation, I had 95 to 100% of the symptoms on several of the hurts, habits, and hangups referenced by CR. But I wasn't afraid. I wasn't afraid if anyone knew. I wasn't afraid that owning the label, even all of the labels, might negate my worth as a person or even diminish the calling God placed on my life. I'm confident His love is unconditional, and I'm certain His acceptance, His gifts, and His calling are irrevocable, even if other people's approval of me is. Romans 11.29 If he could work around Noah's drunkenness, Abraham's pimping his wife twice, Jacob's ongoing deception, Moses' anger management issues, David's adultery, Peter's denials, Paul's murders, then he could certainly work with my green sheets. 
that meant I just needed to work on my heart to continue doing the tough work of the soul, the inside job of uncovering the facets of the Imago Dei, the image of God, that were already tucked inside of me. As I did more of that, more of the fruit I wanted would naturally emerge. And inside the book, there is another picture of that tree that has just ground level. And on the bottom, it has labeled roots. It's easier to work above the surface, but true change happens when we go deep. It's this deeper work that truly leads to transformation. And then above the surface, it's labeled fruits. And it just, it confesses, I dealt with the same fruits hundreds of times, yelling, dishonesty, pride, and posturing. And maybe you just insert your own uh, repeating themes in there. And again, the encouragement is to go deep under the surface because that's what leads, according to this graphic, and the truth, transformation. Here's the next heading. Missing the important. During that long season, when I began pulling these ideas together, I texted my kid's mom. I missed a lot chasing my empty dreams, I typed. There's nothing or very little to show for all that time away, all of those missed moments, all of those sacrificed seasons. In the same way, those addicts have very little to show for all of their addicting behaviors. I had little to show for mine. You have no idea, she replied. The irony is that I forfeited the very relationships which add the most value to my life by chasing things I hoped would fill my life with meaning and purpose. I remembered something I'd read in my Enneagram book. I reached for the shelf and grabbed it. Quote, the relationships of spiritually unevolved threes suffer because they're almost all workaholics. They have so many projects remaining and so many goals to achieve that they can't give their undivided attention to people they love. End quote. That was one of my sins of choice. Workaholism. I remembered always taking work with me on vacation arriving late for dinner at least three or more times each week, regularly sending my wife to bed alone while I worked on my computer pounding away on some project, going out with the boys on a Saturday morning sneak out, one of my staples, and slipping into work mode as soon as I picked up a book, a blank journal, or a device. It never began that way, but it became another opportunity to put one to two hours into something. Why? Because my heart had been attached to the wrong things. As the road back to you says, Quote, they all believe in the same lie. You're only as loved as your latest success. Or you could flip it. You're as unloved as your latest catastrophe or failure. I had a lot of those failures. And in large part, that's why I covered them. And it's why I rarely asked for help. Admitting I couldn't make something work was akin to confessing that something was wrong with me, that I wasn't worthy of love. So I cut corners to achieve. I plowed through people and their feelings in order to chase my dreams. I hid. I lied. I was addicted to finding my value, my self-worth, in externals. As we'll see in part four of this book, I was a textbook case of unhealthy hustle. So I did the things addicts do. Instead of connecting to the right thing, I connected to the wrong things. Again, an addiction is anything that wrongfully takes the place of primacy in our hearts. That night, via text, my kid's mom affirmed that she had needed me, that our children desperately needed me, that they just wanted to be with their daddy, that they would go to work with me just to be near me, even when it meant the only time and attention they received was during the car ride back and forth, that they approached me when I left early or came back late because they craved my affirmation. That's what addiction does. That is, it's what happens when anything takes the place of promise in our hearts, that special spot reserved uniquely for the Creator, 
Our hearts remain restless until He alone resides there. And even after that, let's be honest, life still feels shaken sometimes, doesn't it? And back to the three facts. What does this have to do with emotional pain? Well, most of us, because of those three facts and the one about avoiding pain, (laughs) dodge emotional pain. That is, we're not immune to the things that create trauma, but we like to avoid feeling it. So we cover it. We cling to other things. We fill the holes that emotional wounds create with things that don't sting, with externals that feel good. Money, sex, and drugs, yes, but we also fill that void with things that aren't sin issues. Things that are actually right and good and even noble, and even sex and money are noble with the right expressions, aren't they? In other words, we dodge doing the tough work of the soul, walking through the dark night until we see the sun once again rise on our lives. After all, it's much easier to plug a fluorescent into the wall. We, like Cindy explained to me during that conversation I recounted in chapter 6, create an outer self, a shadow. We toss healthy-looking fruit on a sick tree without doing the tough work on the inside. Recent divorcees become super fit. Former addicts take up new hobbies. Surviving widows or widowers search for new relationships. The abused spouse becomes an advocate or an activist. Abandoned men and women become workaholics. And I know those are all cliches. Seems kind of unfair to pin them like that because they're stereotypes. The reality is that people come in all shapes and sizes and we choose our emotional fillers in our own unique ways. Plus, let's be honest, some of those activities I just listed are bold, world-changing endeavors. We need more of them. But we need those activities we enjoy in conjunction with the deep work of the heart, the hard work of digging the roots and renovating the self from the inside out. Apart from that, they're unhealthy attachments, filling a void that can't be filled by an external. That's where I had gone. Somewhere along the path, I tethered my heart to the wrong things or to the right things in the wrong way. It was time for me to discover who I really was, to go back to the bottom, to find myself overwhelmed by grace, to rewrite the story and to let it take as long as it takes, just like I do when I'm writing an actual book. And that requires, as we'll see in the next section of the book, slowing down, way down. All right, there you go. That is for me probably one of the most revelatory things because it suddenly dawned on me you know so often it's easy to look at problems people have way out there uh, because they seem bigger or they seem uh, less acceptable and then you look at the own connections that your own heart has and you really start making some tough evaluations And so this really, for me, led me to do some deep soul searching, some (laughs) digging, uh, and it's an area where honestly, I I found a lot of healing. I I think now in my work, I produce more than I ever did before. And I believe it's because my heart is actually connected in the right way. Before, goodness, I I was stuck in this toil and hustle. And it's, it's not that I don't work a lot now, but, but it comes from a different place. And, and here's what I've learned. If, if I don't get my identity right and continue affirming the identity of who I am and whose I am, I can easily click into this season 
of striving, of unbridled, unchained toiling and hustling. And all of those bad fruits start emerging again. And it is easy to start playing whack-a-mole with the soul and knocking this issue and knocking that one. But I tell you this, when, when the heart is whole, and when your heart is in a healthy place, and I'm not talking about your physical heart, I'm talking about the metaphysical heart, when you get the soul whole, good fruit always begins to emerge. It doesn't mean there's not gonna occasionally be a bad apple on a good tree. I mean, goodness, you walk out into your yard, you, you, you see bad leaves on good trees all the time, right? That's, that's not what we're looking at. We're looking at the trajectory of the entire thing. Okay, let me pray. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May he be gracious and continue shining his face of favor upon you. May he sanctify you and present you blameless body, spirit, and may your soul be made whole, not with any deficiency that you try to fill with the external things that you could do, but may you be free to pursue those good things from a place of health and wholeness that is radically and fully the created you you were designed to be. Grace, peace, I'll see you again soon.